Welcome to Evidence to Excellence, news in neuroplasticity and rehab powered by The Recovery Project. We want to personally welcome and thank you for joining us today. We're glad that you're here because this podcast is designed to keep you updated on what's new in research and evidence in the neurorehabilitation world. Now, here's your host, Polly Swingle, CEO and co-owner of The Recovery Project. Welcome, everybody, to our next episode of Evidence to Excellence. My name is Polly Swingle, and I will be your host today. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening today. I don't think we've had an episode since December, so we're starting out 2024 with a really, really interesting topic. Um, Today, we're going to talk about TMS. TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. And right now in the US, this is a treatment that has been FDA approved since 2008 for depression. Um, We also are going to dive deeper into TMS and looking at and listening and learning on how there is research being done right now on motor recovery following a stroke um, and utilizing this type of intervention. Um, This really interested me because here at the Recovery Project, we see many, many patients that have suffered... um, a stroke, been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, maybe been involved in a catastrophic accident and suffered from a spinal cord injury or a head injury. And one of the common things that we see is that individuals suffer from depression. Um, We also notice that individuals that are suffering from depression after a form of a disability, it directly affects their ability um, to participate in rehab. And so I'm really interested in this conversation because I think just another approach out there, another treatment out there for individuals with depression, um, instead of always just medicating them might be a nice option for other people out there. Selfishly from me as a PT, if we can get a better handle on treating depression, it would make my job easier and have better outcomes um, in rehab. So today, guys, I want to welcome two people that are experts in this field. I have Steve Watts with us today, who's an occupational therapist. And then I have Dr. Nick Michelle, who is a psychiatrist who is here with us. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about themselves. And then we'll dive real deeply into this conversation. So Steve... I'm going to start with you. Why don't you let the audience know a little bit about your background? Thanks, Polly, and thanks for having us. Uh, so as Polly said, Steve Watts. Um, I have a uh, master's occupational therapy degree that I uh, got from uh, local Wayne State University here. And uh, throughout uh, my years as a therapist, I've just uh, had a, a key interest uh, in the, the field of neurorehabilitation and specifically how to induce neuroplasticity through selecting the right modalities for our patients, but also more recently in uh, recent years looking at non-invasive brain stimulation uh, and how that can help our patients to uh, reach their goals a little bit faster. So um, I am a certified uh, stroke rehab specialist and certified brain injury specialist, and so I work primarily with uh, brain injury, mostly stroke, um, but, uh, happy to be here, Polly, and 
excited for the chat. Well, thank you. Dr. Michelle, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, of course. Thanks, Polly, uh, for inviting me to be here today. Um, it's really great to be here um, in my hometown talking about this topic, and that's really my, bi my bias is that I do TMS for a living, so thanks for doing this and bringing attention to something that is um, very important to me and I think important to the types of patients that I'm trying to treat and the types of patients hopefully we can potentially treat with this that don't have access to this technology. Um, but just a little background about myself right now. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at Wayne State University down in Detroit, which is also where I went to undergrad and went to my med school. Um, and I'm from right outside Detroit in Redford, close to where we're talking right now. Um, I currently work with patients that have a range of psychiatric disorders, but mostly mood disorders like depression, um, which is what TMS is a treatment that's approved for now. And before I started working at Wayne State, I did my residency down in North Carolina at Duke University that is um, one of the largest centers in the United States for clinical brain stimulation research and practice and has had one of the largest brain stimulation research centers um, in the country. And that's where I first got introduced to clinical brain stimulation in general. And then transcranial magnetic stimulation is a specific modality for some patients with depression that meet certain criteria. Um, and right now, um, I work at Wayne State, and then one day a week I treat patients with TMS and some other treatments at a clinic called Greenbrook NeuroHealth in Ann Arbor. Um, and thanks for being here today, and I'm happy to answer any questions and Wonderful. continue talking about this. Well, let's start with just some basic information. So I'm going to just let's have a conversation between the three of us. I think these experts that I have with me today, we can kind of bounce off of each other in giving your expertise and in, in, in the topics that we're talking about. So let's first start with the basics. What is TMS? And with that, if you can talk a little bit about it is FDA approved right now for the U.S. and for what conditions? That one, uh, sure. So TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it's a really nice acronym because it's all in the name. We're using magnetic fields to stimulate the brain transcranially, so through the skull. And what the key here is in electromagnetic brain stimulation, sometimes you need to use electrical currents to affect brain activity. And a direct electrical current to affect the brain is difficult to administer because the skull and the skin has very high electrical resistance. But in the mid-80s, um, there's a scientist by the name of Tony Barker in uh, Sheffield, University of Sheffield in the UK that had this idea, well, the brain and tissue is totally permeable to magnetic fields. And because the nervous system tissue, the brain is an electrically active organ, um, you can use electromagnetism and use electromagnetic induction to induce an electrical field in the nervous system, in the brain, through the skull without having to pass a high, ampl a high amplitude electrical current through the skull, which at that time, that kind of research was very painful. So he developed a machine using an electromagnetic induction coil, a copper coil, that you passed a large current through the coil. There's a very high current in the coil to create a magnetic field, kind of like a uh, MRI machine, a magnetic resonance imaging machine, shrunken down. A large current produces a magnetic field, and then if you oppose the magnetic field close enough to anything that is electrically active or can have an electrical field induced in it, it will. And if you oppose it to brain tissue, um, there's a really nice uh, video, an, an old BBC video of Tony being interviewed and having TMS done on him and it videoed. And if you 
stimulate somebody's brain with a magnetic field through the skull over their motor, motor cortex, which today is still the main way to test and figure out how you can do TMS in a person. You can cause action potentials in the motor cortex. You can cause twitches in hands and arm muscles and in leg muscles, depending on where you target. And that's the real advantage of TMS as a non-invasive brain stimulation tool is that anatomic protocol space and the specificity with which you can stimulate certain anatomic areas of the brain and not be stimulating others. And that's the advantage over cases when sometimes medicines don't work or medications have a lot of systemic side effects because you can use TMS to change brain activity in the same way that a medicine would um, without some of the systemic side effects and a little bit more anatomic specificity. There's trade-offs, of course, and there's risks to TMS, you know, which we can get into some of that as well. But um, in general, I think of it as honestly a very simple kind of technique, a very simple principle and application, um, just using the laws of physics in a different way to induce, stimulate the brain. Um, and now, you know, thankfully, 15 years later in the U.S., we're using it for depression, although I still think that there's a very large, uh, larger protocol space and a lot more patients that have other versions of depression and other nervous system disorders we could use it for, just like the ones that are in the building today. So, I mean, that just made me, the way you're explaining that, is it kind of a protocol that you're always putting it in the same spot? Do you need to have an MRI of somebody's brain before you start a treatment? So great, all great questions. And I would say current TMS research does use MRIs okay. and does use neuro, neuro navigation um, using, you know, um, infrared and radio frequency signals to track where the stimulator is and track where the patient's brain is. And you can even project, you know, digital images and 3D images of electromagnetic fields that you're inducing in the brain is very cool and very um, necessary for research because you want to track and make sure you're, what you're doing is what you say you're doing and confirm your targets and all that. In clinical practice with TMS, though, I think it's interesting where uh, in the practical application, one of the advantages is you don't actually need all those bells and whistles most of the time to cause an effect because, like you said, Polly, once you, if you put the TMS stimulator in general over the area that you know you want to stimulate, so for example, the easiest example in the United States we're talking about depression and the treatment of depression when you're using TMS or if you're using any kind of brain stimulation, one of the main targets is in the prefrontal cortex, so that's above, kind of above your eyes and in me where there's uh, the receding hairline. Um, the target under there is on the dorsal lateral side, so dorsal kind of close to the top and, and near the side. Um, that is the area that has have been shown to have altered activity in people with depression, you know, decades ago with brain imaging, and then brain stimulation treatment started to target that area and connected areas and try to increase activity, increase blood flow there. So somebody that has depression and they're on medication. So I guess I want you to walk us through as, you know, a patient is just experiencing depression new onset, let's say, is, would this be something that they immediately could go to for treatment? Or is it something that after somebody maybe is on medication, and you as their physician would say, let's also add TMS as an adjunct, like kind of what's your thought process on utilization of this? So with utilization is a really interesting question, too, because you get into 
you know, um, concepts or questions about cost, like what's cost effective and what's logistically easy to deploy in the community and people get access to. So practically, something like TMS, which is a brain stimulation technology you can just, right now is only developed for clinical use in the office, so people have to come to the clinic to get it. Um, it's in general, it's easier to try a medication, an at-home oral medication you take every day for a couple months uh, first, and there's enough enough people that get a good enough response from that for even just depression that we see as a psychiatrist, so major depressive disorder. But also similar data exists for depression secondary to medical conditions like post-stroke or in other neurological disorders where it's usually easy enough and you get good enough results to try one or two. Um, two has kind of been uh, the number in research that once people have failed two or more adequate medication trials, then something like TMS actually becomes cost-effective and it becomes worth the extra effort because a person's chance of having success with the third or fourth or fifth or sometimes it's a dozen different medications, your chances of having success go down with each successive medication trial. Your chances of having success with TMS are pretty consistently um, what they are reported in the literature to be anywhere from 50 to 60% of people that go through a full TMS response. And some large studies for depression, people go through a full TMS protocol will have about a 50 or 60% chance of having their symptoms go down by 50% or more. That's kind of what I generally communicate to folks. And that was the outcome of one study by Carpenter and colleagues and has been confirmed a couple times. So those chances are good enough, you know, for most people that after they have tried something easier like a medication at home or some psychotherapy that they're willing to now come into the clinic every day for uh, several weeks for something so like tell TMS. Us a little bit about that protocol. That was where it was going to go next. So if somebody, you know, if, if a patient as well as their physician feels this is something that they should be doing, what is the protocol right now for depression? So this is as interesting, you know, this is a little bit more current uh, topic in TMS research is how to make it um, as safe but more efficient because mm -hmm. for the past 15 years we've been doing it in the clinic once a day for 30 days, 30 weekdays in a row, six weeks, once a, one treatment a day for six weeks in a row. Um, and that when it was, working, was working well enough. Um, but more recently we've been trying to get into more studies to see if we can accelerate or increase the effic efficiency of a TMS protocol by just say one of the, the first ideas was to deliver more than one TMS stimulation in one day. Mm -hmm. And one of the first times I was able to do this protocol um, around here, which is actually, an, I should say, is an, um, an off-label protocol to deliver more than one TMS stimulation over one site in one day. Although there is good enough clinical evidence that when I got a, a set of patients, a few patients around here, I was able to work with folks like Steve, um, who was working with patients like this, and we were able to get into some protocols of delivering more than one TMS session per day um, and get a person better in, say, three weeks instead of six weeks. That's what, So in that case, for the audience out there, if they would go through something like this, is there an adjustment of their current medication typically, or is that kind of a wait-and-see kind of thing? Usually with something like TMS, um, we are going to add it on to whatever the person is currently doing for treatment and therapy. They're almost always, in our case, they you know, have tried something in the, in the uh, area of medication and or behavioral or psychotherapy. And I'll ask the, you know, ask the patient if there's anything that's working, even if it's 10 or 20% of the way, 
we were going to keep it on board, um, and we're going to get the best effects from TMS and medication both that we can because it's definitely been shown in general in medicine and with medications and TMS now that you can get positive synergistic effects with whatever is whatever is working. You know, with both the treatments added them add them together, and you can get sometimes uh, numerically quantitatively greater effect than just both of the treatments by themselves. So following the initial protocol is what I'm going to call it. Is that it or is there kind of follow-up or what's that look like for a patient? So with TMS, it kind of answered that question by telling folks what the uh, general durability is of a treatment. So one of the differences between TMS and something like regular medication management is for medications to work and um, for some different treatments to work, it has to kind of be in your system and there has to be a period of adjusting to it and then having the medication in your system for a while. And it can be six months, 12 months, sometimes a couple or a few years. Um, and then when the medication is, uh, is off board, a lot of times the effects don't last very long, maybe a few months or after that, then patients will start seeing symptoms again, especially if they're exposed to the same things that cause depression in the first place. With TMS, it seems to be that we're doing more frequent, kind of more intensive treatment and maybe um, more significant changes in a shorter period of time when you're doing the daily stimulation sessions because when people um, discontinue daily sessions, they tend to stay stay well uh, for sometimes six months on average. Nine to 12 months is when about 50% of patients that went through a full TMS protocol and had a good response. About 50% of patients will have their symptoms come back somewhere between nine and 12 months. So for the most part, if a person goes through a protocol and has a good response, we just wait and see. And if their symptoms start to come back, the, the um, guidance is to come into treatment before things get as bad as they did the first time, and it will take less treatments to get back, you know, out back to your usual self. Or it might not take something as intensive as TMS for that person to, you know, get back into their usual self, but they should just come back and be seen in the clinic in that time. So talking about getting that person back to being themselves, and I think maybe both of you can answer this from the type of, of, of patients that we see here. I have my mind is spinning on all of the positive things that if we could address their depression maybe quicker, you know, than just that old kind of, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of old school, that medical management that sometimes can take such a long time. In your guys' experience, what are some of like the really the stories that come out that are positive that that patient's life changed? You know, are they what are they doing differently? Yeah, I could speak to that probably a little bit. So, you know, I mean, when we're trying to maximize patient outcomes in therapy, um, we're so limited by things like depression, anxiety, um, which are, are so common within this population of, uh, of brain injured patients. And so, um, you know, I think for a patient who is recovering from a brain injury or stroke, getting out of bed in the morning is a hard thing to do. You know, going to OT, going to PT, going to speech, doing all of these daily activities, it's exhausting. And if you're able to some, somehow lift that veil, Um, with a treatment like TMS, you're going to have more patient motivation. You're going to see, uh, you know, more effectiveness of your treatment outcomes. And from my experience, um, you know, if, if you don't get the 
mental health challenges under control, the physical rehabilitation is going to be hindered uh, extensively. So uh, the better we can manage that, as you've alluded to, um, the, the better patient outcomes we're going to see. Yeah, and I think talking about this subject, because matter of fact, it, that we were just talking about this today with some of my staff that, and I'm sure, Dr. Michelle, you can account to this, that the mental health aspect sometimes is kind of pushed under the rug that, especially after somebody has a brain injury or a stroke, it's like, okay, we need to get you moving. Yeah. And that barrier of depression, I love that that analogy of that heaviness or that veil is so, is there, which as me as a PT and Steve as an OT, is that struggle for us that we keep pushing and pushing and they're, they're just not ready yet. They just have to get through that and get treatment for that. So this sounds like a really, really great option to maybe even speed that through that process a little bit quicker. In your practice, is treatment for depression, you know, is that um, when's kind of the best window, you know, for in your mm-hmm. work to screen and then send somebody out or inter- or intervene, you know, given that you're, you guys are seeing people multiple times a week here too, you know, yeah. in this kind of practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, last question about TMS and depression. Any side effects that the audience needs to know about? Of, of course, yeah. So TMS, kind of the standard the effects that any patient getting it will feel are just related to the stimulation pulses themselves. So different from uh, from an MRI when you have TMS, the nerves in your skin and the muscle in your skin and scalp under the TMS stimulator will also be stimulated. And most of uh, patients that go through the high-frequency repetitive stimulation protocols for depression say that the sensation is kind of like a woodpecker. That's probably the most common okay. thing. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's just kind of what doctors tell patients to expect and then now that's just become the thing of what uh, TMS feels sounds like. Sounds a little bit like a woodpecker too. Sounds a little yeah. bit like a like a, a Woody the Woodpecker and uh, <laughs> that's the unofficial TMS mascot. Um, the side effects you know related to that uh, feeling so if a person this is uncommon you know if a person has say an unusually high threshold or an unusually um, large magnetic field is required to stimulate that person's brain for whatever reason then the actual stimulation pulses themselves might be uncomfortable but more common i think is the effects of like some sensitization and discomfort with the repetitive stimulation on the skin and the muscle under the treatment site so that might be in some studies 30 40 or 50 percent of patients will report that when tms starts the first week and then about 90 percent of those um, side effect reports people get used to in the first week and go down to below 10 percent at the end of the first week just those general how long is the session so it will depend on, again, on what your target and then whether you're trying to increase or decrease activity in the target. But generally anywhere as short as three and a half minutes oh. to as long as some protocols, 60 minutes, 65, oh. 70 minutes, probably prob- usually no longer than um, 50 or 60, mi- 60 minutes. Yeah. So it's not a long time. No. So some of the newer, you know, higher efficiency, highest efficiency protocols have shown to been shown to be very effective, or at least as effective as the old protocols using a three-minute stimulation session, as effective as an older 19-minute stimulation session, as effective as an even older 40-minute stimulation session. So now with 
you know, the ways that we're learning more about the, this is more like the physiologic protocol space with TMS. So how many pulses do you use per session and how, what the amplitude is and how do you space the pulses? How do you space the sessions? We're still learning some of this. And with a couple of you know, patients that uh, Steve and I have worked with through at, at Wayne State, we're even going through this process and from patient to patient trying to decide, okay, what is the optimal intercession interval where we can do a TMS session and then Steve wants to take the patient and do some upper limb PT and then we're going to go do another TMS session and I say, well, we're just going to actually take a break because sometimes the brain just yeah. needs to take a break for, to allow the changes to happen. Um, these are some of the things we're work, working on right now and you know, I could keep, I could go on and on and on. I'm kind of pretty excited talking about it. Well, something I can, I can add to Polly is <clears throat> that it seems from a therapist perspective that and we're finding this in research in general, that these non-invasive brain stimulation techniques, TMS is not the only one. It's our topic today. And I think uh, from everything I've seen and used, it's been the most effective. Uh, but uh, we're seeing that it's, it's priming the cortical tissue prior to therapy so that we're able to make an accelerated change during therapy. And so uh, you could liken it to someone taking right, a pre-workout drink before they mm -hmm. exercise, something that's going to rev up your nervous system to get, you know, better outcomes from the same input, right? So um, if, we can, if we can progress patients to their goals faster with the same level of exercise, that's amazing. But what we're finding is because TMS is helping to lift those mental health difficulties, these challenges that these patients have, you're actually not just getting more of a bang for your buck with the same level of input, but you're getting more input because these patients are motivated, right? right. So right. It, it's, it's helping in multiple levels. I think the twofold approach is really the mental health benefits, but also that cortical excitability that you're getting by priming the nervous system before you're doing therapy. And, um, and as Dr. Michelle said, you can even see when you're, you're performing this stimulation over the motor cortex, you're seeing movement in the affected limb. For instance, if someone has had a right, uh, right side stroke, left side affected, you're going to see movement along the left side of the body. And then, you know, further down the road and what we're looking into is can we then stimulate uh, peripherally? Can we do some electrical stimulation or things peripherally to increase communication from the top down and from the bottom up? And so all these are, you know, somewhat question marks. We know that there's theories to support what we're doing, and there's a good amount of research that is supporting what we're doing. But there's still some question marks and things we need to yeah, figure out I, along the way. I mean, that's medicine, right? Yep. Which is a wonderful lead into kind of what I want to also talk about because you're, you're right. I know I have read so many studies on using TMS over the motor cortex and looking at the studies I've been reading is a lot of them have been on uh, recovery of the upper extremity. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear from you guys on that of what – you have read. I know that this is not FDA approved at this point in time here in the United States, but what you have read, what um, you are starting to see out there um, in, in our communities on using TMS for potentially, hopefully in the future, that we could use it to assist us in neuroplasticity. Yeah, I think, I think from the motor rehab side, <clears throat> there are several dozen studies that uh, I have seen that support and have, have valid evidence to support the use of TMS. 
um, for you know someone that's that's rehabbing after a brain injury. Um, what I what I do think is, as you mentioned, that that upper limb seems to be um, you know most benefited by the stimulation, and I think uh, this is due to the anatomy and the superficial representation of the upper limb. Uh, in that motor cortex. And so the, the magnetic stimulation is, you know, going down and, and Dr. Michelle can speak, you know, more at length about this, but the, the stimulation is only going to penetrate so far. And so the, um, the further away from the magnet you get, the less stimulation you're getting. So that superficial level of brain tissue is going to get the most energy. Um, and what's also interesting not to go on too much of a rabbit trail here, but uh, what's interesting with mitochondrial health, and when you look at mitochondrial dysfunction in a patient who's had a stroke, um, there's less mitochondria per neuron. Like your, your cells actually have less mitochondria, so less energy production. And what TMS has been proven to do is to increase mitochondrial biogenesis, to increase the number of mitochondria per cell. Um, so you're enhancing the energy in the brain. You're giving the brain more energy to do the work that we're trying to do in OT or in PT. Um, so, yeah, it's fascinating. Anything you want to add on that? Um, not, I mean, not really much, much to add there. Um, what I've seen from my perspective, you know, as a psychiatrist and mostly working in behavioral neuroscience um, and then coming at kind of this population of patients um, that are in neuro rehab, even uh, more recently working with uh, Steve is on you know on the one on the one hand um, I'm very excited and very interested to see what uh, what we can do with this technology and in trying to figure out how it works because it is so specific in where you stimulate and it's in some senses a little a little bit more easy uh, to use in research and clear to track you know, stimulating this area versus another area and tracking what works better and what works doesn't work better. In psychiatry, we've always had the challenge of trying to measure behavioral outcomes where we don't really have a scan or really have, you know, a test that's very sensitive or as highly sensitive and specific as as we want it to be. Um, so I'm excited to see what are the more kind of broad general uses of this kind of technology in areas outside of psychiatry? Um, internationally, globally, TMS is actually used more commonly by neurologists, uh, physiatrists, anesthesiologists, and primary care docs in places like Australia, Europe, and Asia than in psychiatrists um, because of the, again, all, also very robust evidence of the use of TMS for indications outside of psychiatry. Um, in terms of Using TMS for patients post-stroke and neuro rehab, I think is actually interesting. And again, partly might, might be might be my bias as a psychiatrist that I've read more of that literature. But there's a little bit more evidence and a little bit more robust evidence even that patients, especially patients that have clinical depression after a stroke, whether it's in the acute, you know, subacute or chronic phase, um, TMS treatment for depression in those patients gives a clearly better physical rehab outcome than than not and there some of the study some of the things I've other studies I've compared to seems like TMS can even give you a little bit better outcome than other studies that have used antidepressants um, in combination with you know standard neuro rehab after a stroke and that it kind of, and it makes sense you know for a condition that is very clearly related to a neurological insult and you can see where the insult is you can 
see where there's healthy tissue left over and where there's affected tissue left over. Um, TMS is the kind of tool that even somebody that was as non-procedurally, uh, non-technically trained as a psychiatrist, you know, I don't get very much procedural surgical training in my psychiatry residency, you know, folks, doctors like us can um, pick these machines up and point it at the right part of the brain and stimulate and get, you know, the effect that we're looking for reproducibly um, and reliably, reliably for depression. Um, the interesting thing is that, you know, whether depression is from clinical major depressive disorder, you know, which is the genetic version that psychiatrists most likely talk about or most commonly talk about that's defined in the DSM, and that's actually a, could be even a a minority or just a subset of depression that's seen generally in the clinical community because depression, or if we're really just talking about problems in that circuit that contains the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, um, as you said, is the rates of depression in um, patients that have had stroke or patients that have had Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis or even patients with cardiovascular disease, yeah. diabetes, any medical condition, general inflammation um, can affect the brain and the brain can have this more general nonspecific response to become depressed. And um, one of the, the quotes from uh, one of the folks that did the initial research with TMS and depression here in the U.S., I've heard him say that if um, if depression is a nail and TMS is a hammer, you point it the right, right area, you treat it, you know, and you can treat depression no matter where or how it, it crops up. You know, you're well, not I, I think, I, I, God, that's a great analogy. And Steve, I think you would agree the same thing is what we're seeing in the research from motor recovery that you can specifically target that area. I know, as you said, we're seeing more of the literature on upper extremity, but I think it just opens up our world as rehab providers that bringing, you know, bringing what we do with TMS. I mean, I have this idea in my head, like, wouldn't it be great to have a TMS machine right in a rehab center like is right here? And then before a patient heads out to their OT session, that they may go in for a five-minute little TMS session, prime, prime their self up, and then off they go to therapy. And wow, would that make our job a little bit easier and overall how effective and how efficient because I know we all run into that issue of insurance is paying for less, people are getting less visits, we as therapists are trying to manage these medical conditions and all these barriers with just this set of tools that we have. And historically, the tools that I have had aren't always working. Yeah, yeah, like you said, Polly, people are getting less visits, so you have to squeeze what you can out of each visit. And I think that technologies like TMS uh, can help you do that. And it's interesting because, you know, as a therapist, being able to use a pretty advanced system that I'm using right now with neuronavigation and being able to upload that MRI and not just to treat the person, but to be able to see. I mean, obviously, when you're working long enough with a patient, you can get a understanding for what that stroke you know, may have done. But when you see the representation <clears throat> in the MRI, you're able to see really what you're treating and you can see what's still even connected. What are mm -hmm. the, the pathways in the brain that um, we should focus on? And so it's interesting. I talked to Dr. Michelle about this previously, but, you know, we're even looking at, you know, could TMS 
be a device used to um, to help target um, therapy interventions for even a, a new stroke, someone in an acute setting, um, could we use TMS to see what's still active, right? I mean, there's functional MRIs and there's things of this nature, but to actually see the leg or the arm move with stimulation of the brain is showing us that we have that direct connection. But if we don't see that, perhaps it helps us to focus our therapy on particular areas that are more connected, Right. Yeah, no, it, absolutely. I mean, because how many, I mean, what are the principles of neuroplasticity, right? And so many times following an acute episode, people may not be moving. And then what happens to the, to the tracks and the brain and the neurons and all that right there when people aren't moving? And if you could see that and target that, that would, that would change the outcome of their recovery. Yeah. I mean, that yeah, would be incredible. There's a window, you know. So some of the studies that I've seen using TMS, either both over the motor cortex, directly over the affected area, or contralaterally to the affected area, or even um, TMS that's been done over an area like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in patients with depression and stroke, they seem to get better outcomes in the window where neuroplasticity is probably thought to be at its highest after an event mm-hmm. like that, which is in the, it's called the subacute period or post-acute period, you know, in, when patients probably go getting right out of the hospital and they're getting started and should be getting started in rehab and working as hard as they, they can and be at, at kind of trying to find what their, where their functional limits are. Um, it's in that period where you want to, that's, you know, where the brain is actually at its most plastic and most uh, changeable. In the chronic phase, the studies I've seen, um, you just see, don't, you see less good outcomes and it's just harder. It's a more difficult substrate to change once you've had all those chronic changes and all that scar tissue form. um, And then, you know, kind of whatever is left over is what you're working with. Right. Yeah. I think to add to what you said though, Polly, about having a device in the clinic, right? Um, It's, it's not far-fetched at all. I think it's, it's entirely, you know, possible. And, uh, and I think looking at new technologies in the TMS space, and maybe Dr. Michelle, you could add to this, companies are, are attempting to create units that are utilized at home with customized EEG and customized programs to deliver TMS uh, within, within your home. So you have a lot of patients without a TMS clinic nearby uh, that could then benefit from that technology as well. Dr. Michelle, did you want to? There's, I yeah. There's one, you know, there's one technology called MERT that's not FDA approved, um, but it's uh, cleared think, for use if, in depression and then possibly AD, ADHD that involves EEG mapping and brain imaging. And there's an at-home uh, TMS-like stimulator that um, that is used. Right now, still the the technology involving MERT, we can use it at home. It still hasn't been developed to be as say. Like as powerful as what we are, what's available, and what we can mm-hmm. do in the office, but it's not, not far, not far away. I mean, there we I even have. I know of patients that, um, patients that have enough means means and access um, have their own clinical TMS units. You know, either in their home or in their a clinic that is attached to their home. And in the future, I I think there that will be you know really the best way to deliver this kind of brain stimulation is where it's most easily accessible to a patient. Um, and I tell my students and residents all the time that, you know, one day I don't, I don't think about like what kind of, you know, cool new car I want to put in my garage. Like I want to put a TMS, I want to have a TMS in my garage one day, you know, and I can treat patients and, um, 
Well, just think, I mean, gosh, you could go from here to 100, but just think aging. I mean, you could go in so many different areas to think what we could do with TMS, not just with depression, not just with motor recovery. I mean, what about, you know, neuroprogressive diseases? I don't know. I mean, I think like you said earlier, I think there's so much potential here with using this type of technology. I had to, you know, I kind of try to think about it less as, you know, a TMS is good for this or that kind of disorder because TMS really, it's actually not a treatment that's going to be targeted at the etiology or the cause of many of the things that TMS is trying to treat. So even though TMS in the U.S. is used to treat depression, it's actually not getting at the cause of major depressive disorder, which a lot of it is genetic, multifactorial, and involves environmental stressors and person's individual sensitivities to this and that. So I'm, we're not going to cure anything necessarily with TMS um, for depression or TMS for any particular symptom, any particular manifestation of neural circuit pathology. What the kind of paradigm shift and the leap forward that TMS is, though, is it gives you the a practitioner um, or patient the ability to specifically target one circuit in the brain. And any circuit in the brain that has a node or a processing center that's on the surface, the cortical surface, that is an area that TMS, the protocol space you have access to. So it more gives you, as a, as a physician, I feel like I have more control over the effect that I have on a person's anatomy and physiology as compared to some medic, as compared to, you know, traditional medication management, as compared to therapy. Um, and it's for, you know, the tool that it is, it, it pretty much is the only thing that can do what it's, what it's going to do. Um, and it, it fits its niche very well. So how accessible is it now? Let's just talk in the Detroit area. Is it every single psychiatrist have one in their office right now? So in terms of, ex- I would say accessibility is still not not good enough. Um, and, you know, you're probably probably still only scratching the surface in terms of the even just the patients that you could treat with TMS for major depressive disorder, you know, let alone depression from other causes or let alone um, other neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, in the Detroit area, though, in most major metro areas, though, you will have enough TMS clinics to have access to one that's within a reasonable driving distance, although, again, define reasonable, so you still might have to drive 30 or 40 miles. And say in Michigan, there isn't one that I know of in the Lansing area or up north, or once you get out, kind of outside side of metro areas, then access falls way off. Um, In metro areas and um, more populated areas, practitioners are more likely to to know about it. Um, And then access, in that case, you might be able to get a referral. Uh, But even, but then outside of that, you're even, you're going to see even less likely folks not even, not really knowing about it. So for our audience, is it covered by insurance? So depending on what your the indication is, so that's kind of the the big buzzword with the yeah. FDA and the U.S. and the in insurance is insurance follows what ten, generally insurance will follow what the evidence is, and they follow the um, the FDA board, you know, who approve uh, will approve marketing of certain devices or certain medications for certain treatments. So um, in the U.S. Um, TMS is covered by most insurances and Medicare and Medicaid for FDA-approved indications, which is more likely to be a, um, insurance covered for depression because TMS has been FDA-approved for depression since 2008. It's also been FDA-approved um, for OCD, for 
since 2019, I think, for a few years. It's been FDA-approved for smoking cessation with a specific device uh, for three years. Um, and then a different kind of devices with different uh, mechanics have been approved to do TMS to treat migraines both acutely and prophylactically, um, which is FDA-approved, but most, uh, most of the time that is not covered by insurance. So sometimes it depends um, what the indication is, whether or not it'll be covered by your insurance or Medicare or Medicaid. But for depression, you know, I tell my patients that I'm very, very surprised when it's not, not okay. covered by now. Um, for other newer FDA-approved indications right, right. and yeah. awful indications, it depends. You know, we are not yet there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping um, that soon, potentially, we can get TMS for that motor recovery, which would be a great adjunct to what we do. Guys, anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to share with our audience today? I have something, Polly. So, you know, I think, and and listening to Dr. Michelle uh, speak about this, and I I agree with the um, the the claim that uh, improvement is going to come uh, easier within a certain period of time following a brain injury. While that is true, I, I just want to talk to the listeners that uh, may be struggling in a chronic phase uh, after a uh, neurologic injury and say that I've seen patients five years post-stroke, five years post-brain injury, five years post, actually one twenty years post-spinal cord injury with the right amount of rehabilitation, the right techniques, the right technologies. I've seen these people make dramatic improvements in functional outcomes. Um, so, you know, I, I, things are coming. You know, TMS is one of those things. Uh, TPS, if the audience wants to, you know, do a search for transcranial pulse stimulation, I think that's going to be something in the near future we're seeing more of in neurorehabilitation. Um, but uh, but I don't want people to lose hope because uh, they're are so many possibilities at any stage. And what we see with TMS and brain stimulation is also an increase in blood flow to this area of the brain, um, with TPS specifically, an increase in BDNF, which is a growth factor uh, that aids in neuroplasticity, uh, angiogenesis happening, new blood vessels forming uh, to supply the brain tissue. There, there are things, ways that we can induce neuroplasticity non-invasively. Uh, there are also invasive deep brain stimulation techniques and vagus nerve stimulation and things like this. I won't go too far off topic here, but my, my main point to the audience is just don't lose hope, continue to work hard, and good things will happen. Yeah, and I'm so glad you say that because I think that's the message that we always talk about is that you still got to be moving, working hard. We always talk about these principles of neuroplasticity. Get those repetitions in. Move what you can move. And, yeah, the technology, the science is, is coming. Um, and we in this podcast, I'm always trying to bring the new technology, talking about those subjects that, yep, this traditional, the way we used to do it, yep, this is what we know, but hang in there, guys, because there is more coming to make the recovery happen maybe quicker, happen more efficiently, so that we can see these people that are having that quality of life that they want to have and continue to have. 
So I want to, boy, you guys, I have learned so much and I want to thank you so much. And before we go, Dr. Michelle, do you want to let the audience know anything about how to find you or where you work or where they can find some of this um, TMS? Sure. Yeah, no, again, I, I um, so my prim, you know, primary place where I work and uh, teach and do research is at Wayne State University down there in Detroit. Um, and then I also I wanted to thank Steve for saying that. It was a great message and echo what, what he just said. And even a lot of the, the patients that he and I work with are years. You know, it's years after they've had the stroke. Um, and, you know, really there that is the real message that to not lose hope and that there are continually things like this, TMS and other technologies like TPS that are coming down uh, the pipeline. The biggest issue, you know, right now with getting people access to this and getting the word out is just getting uh, more access to these kind of technologies out to practitioners in the real world in the clinic in a way that can be easily deployed and easily uh, used. So I'm working with a professional nonprofit, nonprofit group called the Clinical TMS Society that has a main mission of just education uh, for patients and other psychiatrists, other practitioners in the U.S. and abroad about TMS uses for depression and for any other disorder. And then the TMS Society has spun off um, a nonprofit foundation called the Foundation for the Advancement of Clinical TMS that has a philanthropic mission, uh, which has started some research uh, programs and also has a program to try to get free or low-cost TMS machines into clinics in to the U.S. and globally um, in providing free training and onboarding and trying to get a little bit of the, the learning curve out of the way for people because for what I've noticed with TMS, you know, used in patients and my own personal experience is that once I get, you get past the initial learning curve of trying to learn something new, a new technology or a new approach, um, you know, I'm kind of in it, you know, uh, full force. And obviously this is, this is my bias because that's what I do full time. And in my practice with students and people I've shown to, it's, I've seen that as well. It's like once people kind of see it for the first time and get over that initial learning curve, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you two because you both have seen the technology and now that you've seen it, you're here and you're wanting to, to talk about it. And it's kind right. of one of those things where you see it, kind of see it to believe it. And that's part of the, what we're trying to do is just get more machines out there and get right. uh, more education out there. Well, I love it. Well, this is one way to do that because we have a lot of listeners from all over the country that listen to this podcast. So I want to thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dr. Michelle. Um, I want to give a little plug here for the Recovery Project. If you want a little bit more information on us, we are at www.therecoveryproject.net. You can follow us on all of our social networks, Facebook and um, Instagram as well. And please, when we post this podcast, Podcast, which will probably be in a couple weeks. You know, send us any comments. Um, more to come on this. I am sure this is not the last time that I'm going to ask these two gentlemen to meet with us and talk about this very, very exciting um, topic. So, you guys have a great month, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to today's Evidence to Excellence News and Neuroplasticity and Rehab Podcast. We appreciate you and hope that you come back every fourth Tuesday of the month to get more of what's new in evidence and research in the neurorehabilitation world. To learn more about the Recovery Project or to find out what we're up to next, you can visit us anytime at therecoveryproject.net.